go ahead and open up to John 14. Our time last week, um, we spent looking at the effects of the cross, not necessarily the crucifixion and the details of what took place at Jesus' death, but really some of the effects um, and how it um, changes our life and, and what it does. And, and towards the end of chapter 13, um, if you remember, one of the things we talked about was the fact that the cross uh, was Jesus alone. Um, he, he had told Peter and the disciples, where I'm going, you can't go, at least not now. Um, he was making his way towards the cross, um, and it was his death um, that would pay the penalty for sin. And so it was him that had to die that death at that moment. Um, and, and we mentioned, you know, the disciples would follow suit later. Um, they would all, except for John, be martyred um, for the faith. And, and we're called to take up our cross and follow him. But it was at that specific moment um, that it had to be Jesus alone. And because of that, um, he was preparing them for his leaving. Now, <clears throat> knowing that fact, knowing that Jesus was leaving, we can pretty much kind of deduce that there was probably some pretty strong emotional confusion with the disciples. I mean, we think about it, right? So um, Jesus had come along proclaiming that he was the Messiah. Um, they would have known this teaching that God had promised a Messiah, that one was coming. And then here's this man proclaiming that he is the Messiah, and he calls them to follow him. And they do. They leave their careers, their jobs. They, many of them leave their homes to give everything to follow Jesus, trusting that he is the Messiah, trusting that he is the King of Kings, um, not fully understanding what all that would look like, obviously, in their life, but probably imagining to a degree that everything would be drastically different from that point forward, and it was. They probably all still had some inkling of the traditional notion that Jesus would be some type of military, overruling, sovereign king that would rule over peoples, um, which he does, but not quite in the way that they would have imagined. They, they would have imagined more of an earthly type king, but just greater than anything they had ever seen. And so they had invested their lives into Jesus. And here he's now saying, I'm about to leave. So you can imagine some of the questions, right? Like, how can the Messiah fail? How can the Messiah leave us? How can this one who we have given everything to follow abandon us? And so I'm sure there was some great agony and confusion amongst them. I mean, if, if someone come and said, all right, I, I am the greatest person that will ever walk the face of the earth. I am God in the flesh. Follow me. And you do that. And then three years later, he says, okay, now I'm about to leave you. You would probably be pretty distraught. But if we only focus on the agony of the disciples here, we actually miss something pretty tremendous. See, even though they were probably pretty confused and put back and uncertain and distraught, it was Jesus who was on a path to Calvary. 
It was Jesus on the way to bear the wrath of God for our sin. And yet, in the moment of His greatest affliction, He cares for them. Now, if you were in a situation where you knew that you were about to die, you would probably want to check off some boxes, right? Just like we talked about last week, you want to fulfill your bucket list or, you know, do a few things that you've always wanted to do but were probably afraid to do or didn't really want to invest in doing, and you would want people to care for you. But Jesus does quite the opposite, and He cares for them. He shows compassion for the disciples because He loved them greatly. And that speaks a lot to the nature and the character of God. That He loves even in hard circumstances. He loves us when we don't deserve to be loved. He cares for us at our weakest moments. And in this particular text, He provides comfort for those He loves and He shares compassion with them by promising them something great, heaven. And the main idea of the text that we're going to be in today, starting in verse 14, is this, that because God is sovereign and good, He is worthy of our unwavering trust, and He promises the eternal reward is great. If you will, let's stand, and I want to read verses 1 through 14. And I want to pray for us. And I want to pray for our time together. And I also want to pray that we catch the full gravity of what's taking place here. It's easy to focus on verse 6 because as we get to that, you'll, you'll see it. this is a verse that if you grew up in and around church, you've heard your whole life, but, but there's so much more here. So let's pray that God would show us that. Starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to, my, take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. But truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Our gracious King, as we spend time in your word in these verses this morning, God, I pray that we will see the whole scope of what's taking place. That we will be reminded of why it is we do what we do as your followers. That we will rest in the assurances of heaven based on the work of Christ our King. And as I prayed earlier, Father, again, I pray that all of the distractions of life will just fade, at least for these few moments. That we will hear the truth of who you are and rest in the promises of your word. That we, we would be reminded that as your children, we have been set apart to do your work for your glory. And that we would receive the promise of knowing that it's all worth it. As we prepare for that great day where we stand before you and hear, well done. Thy good and faithful servant. So, Father, I also ask that in this time, as we work through this text, that for those who have never truly trusted in you, regardless of what motions they've went through in life, that they would understand whether or not they really do trust you or not, that there would be no blurred line this morning, that if there truly has never been a genuine confession of faith in you, that through your word this morning, that you will Awaken those hearts that they will confess Jesus is Lord. So I pray, God, that your word would speak this morning. And through the working of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through the reading and the preaching of your word. So that our lives are forever changed. That our sins would be repented of. That our encouragements would be reminded of our hope in Christ. That as we see Jesus' compassion and love for his followers. That we would be reminded that he loves us greatly too. And that as they share their doubts and their confusion and they hear the promises of Jesus, that we would be reminded of those promises as well. That you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And that at the end of our lives, as they have been exhausted for the glory of Christ, that we will stand before you, arrayed in the glory of of your salvation, knowing it was worth every moment. 
So this morning, God, we do ask that you would bless the reading of your word. That you would speak to us. As you know us. You know what's in our hearts. You know what we're dealing with in life. And that we would continue to form us all into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's his, his, in his name that we pray. Amen. You be seated. So this morning we're looking at the promise of heaven. And as we begin to dive into this text, that's exactly where we start with the promise of heaven. In verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The promise of heaven begins with this compassion of Jesus towards his followers. Again, on the brink of his greatest trial, he loves his people. What is the greatest trial? It's making his way to the cross where we have a tendency of think of the pain, right? The beating, the mocking, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear in his side. But that's not the agony that I'm referring to. It's the agony of bearing the wrath of God for all of the sin meant for all of his people, from all of his people, for all of time. It's Jesus who is going to the cross to take that in our place. And yet in that great moment, Jesus shows compassion to his followers He cares for their soul. He comforts their hearts. He encourages them by strengthening their faith. See, again, they had trusted Jesus with everything. They had surrendered their lives to Him, given up a lot to follow Him. And they did. And while there were probably moments where they were not perfect, they had faith that Jesus was who he says he was. And yet now, all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about leaving and and departing from them. And I would imagine that there's now some sense of doubt with some. Again, how can this Messiah leave? How can the Messiah fail? If God is sovereign and if God is... Above all things, how can he do this? And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that how compassionate the Lord is towards us? How many moments in your life have you faced a spiritual crisis and the Father has encouraged your soul? Whether it be through another person, or just a circumstance in life to where he reminds you of his grace. For them, he reminds them vocally, and it's really a reminder that we receive as well because we have the Word of God in our hands. So he says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, he's saying, you trust God, trust in me too. It's a pretty strong statement. He's He's not saying, you know, if you trust God, then you should trust me. He was saying, no, your faith is in the Father, 
don't forget that I am the Father in the flesh. I am God here. We are one. And that's a promise that we should all hear and and hold tightly to, that Christ is not just some other person. He's God in the flesh. He reminds time and time again that I and and the Father are one. Therefore, if, if you're trusting the Father, then you should be trusting me too. In other words, he's really asking them to have faith. Don't give up yet. I know you're confused. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but just trust me. Hold on just a little longer, and it'll all make perfect sense. Again, Jesus knows the big picture, and he's shared a glimpse of that with them in chapter 13. And now he's saying, just hold tight. What's going to take place is coming pretty soon. And as I was like studying through that and thinking through that, all I could think was, do I actually trust in the plans of God? Because I catch myself weekly at least, sometimes daily, just saying, God, what are you doing? When things get tough, it's easy for me to question. It's easy for me to doubt. I'm a skeptical person by nature anyway, and there's times where I just say, Lord, this just doesn't make sense. I can't do this. And then I find myself studying the exact text I need. And at a point, I almost hear him saying to me, Son, don't let your heart be troubled. I got this. You know, the truth of it is, is our tendency, or at least mine is, and I'm grouping you in that category too because it's just part of the human condition, is to make, more, make much more of ourselves than we should. Right? I think I'm doing pretty good. God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. But at the end of the day, Christ has been working long before we were here. He was building this church long before we were here. And he's still going to be building this church long after we're gone. Now, while that may seem like a kind of fatalistic or not happy way to approach this. It's actually the opposite. Instead of saying, well, if it really doesn't matter, then that, but that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is how much of a blessing it is that God would allow us to be a part of this. How humbling that is to think that the creator of the universe would see it fit to create us, to be a part of his plan, to put us here on this pale blue dot, and to not even just exist, but to exist for his purpose. Like, we are actually playing part in God's design. How humbling, but how awesome is that? And so when we read this type of text, how encouraging it is for us to know 
that if he can do all of that, then my little peon of existence and my little blip of problems are nothing in comparison to what he can do. And so when he tells me, don't be troubled, how encouraging should that be to us? And just imagine the disciples being here at this moment, hearing Jesus tell them, don't forget who I am. Believe in the Father. Don't forget. We're one and the same. Believe in me too. And so he goes on and by way of encouraging them to, to tell them why he has to go and what he's going to be doing. So he goes on in verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am going you may be also. Now, again, imagine the encouragement this is for them, because he had just said, where I'm going, you can't follow. At least not right now. And so now he turns right back around and he says, but in my going, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back. And I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to make a way for you. So, so you will be able to go where I'm going. You just can't do it quite yet. So just hold tightly. Again, trust me. And so he begins to tell them of heaven. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare the way. And he's just simply telling them that, listen, while it seems horrible for you right now, it's important that I leave. Like, I know you want me to be here with you, but it's in my leaving that is actually proving to be your good. Because I'm not just leaving and, and, and abandoning you. I'm not just going away because I'm tired of dealing with this. I'm going for a purpose. I'm going to make this possible for you. See, it's only the work of Christ that makes heaven possible, right? See, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that is our only hope of heaven. It's His going that prepares a way for us. His promise of heaven can only be happening because of His leaving. See, the cross is so much bigger than we give it credit for at times. While the main thrust of the cross is the glory of God by providing a means of salvation for His people, it's also preparing us for the eternal reward of trusting Christ. And for me, as a pastor, I, I hold tightly to that. And you know that I, I and I've made it clear that I, at times I just struggle. And I, I find myself in these pits and I hold tight to that promise that he shares in, you know, through Peter that working and, and waiting for, to receive that unfading crown of glory. And for you as, as a Christian as well, if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this too because your only hope of receiving this eternal reward is in trusting Christ. But, but for those of us who have trusted Christ, who go through you know, the ups and downs of life, 
hear the promise he has here. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to make it possible for you to be in the presence of the Father and I. But what is the comfort then for us? He's telling the disciples, and at this moment, you can kind of see the context of what's taking place, that he's told them, I'm about to leave you, that I'm about to be gone, and you're, you're going to be here, and you've got each other, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but, but they don't know that yet. And, and, and he's going to provide for them that. But all they could probably see is that the one that they had given their life to is leaving. The one they had surrendered everything Four and two is, is leaving them. And so he's, he's encouraging them, I've got this. You just need to be patient. Hold on. Trust my plans because my plans are greater than your plans. I see the end game. You don't quite get it yet. And so you kind of see the context of how encouraging this is for them that he's saying this. But, but what about us right now? How do we receive comfort from this? It's not much different than the comfort that they are receiving. That the assurance that Jesus and the Father are one and that those who trust in Him will receive a place in the Father's house is there. You know, it's not just these few years that we have on this planet. That's not the end of life. It's just part of it. It's not what I heard several years ago, a prominent atheist say that his belief is that life is just cold, dark, and empty, and then when it's over, that's it. That's not it at all. You know, this life we have here is pretty quick. And it fades fast. But that's just the beginning. It can either be the beginning of eternal celebration and rejoicing in the goodness of God. Or it will be an eternity of regret and separation from Him. And so for Him talking to His disciples... The word telling us as the people of God. Remember who I am. Remember that my promises never fail. Remember that I'll never leave you. Remember that I am good, that I am gracious, that I'm merciful. And it's in his promises that we receive the confidence to fully surrender to Jesus. And to live life just completely for his glory. Not getting caught up in what we want and what we desire and, and what we can attain, but just trusting Him with everything we have and, and to not be bound by the flesh, not be held captive to the sin that we want to hold so dear to when, when in reality it's, it's us holding to that and it holding to us at the same time and just letting all of those things go and to pursue Christ because He is worthy of it all. And to know it's worth it. And we really have no excuses. And I know it's easier said than done, right? To give Christ everything. 
to trust him with our families, to trust him with our lives, to trust him with our personalities, to trust him with our families and our children and our jobs and everything, to just say, Christ is all I need. And so the promise of heaven gives us this assurance of knowing that when we come to the end of this earthly life, it was worth it. It was worth all the pain. It was worth all the rejoicing. It was worth all of the uncomfortable moments. It was worth every bit. As we pursue the glory of Christ and we find joy in who He is. And so there's just a simple question as we get ready to move on from the promise of heaven to the way of heaven. What's holding us back this morning? What is it in your life that's keeping you from pursuing Christ with everything? What is it that keeps you from being bold in your faith? What is it that keeps you from pursuing Him with everything you have? Is it your job? Is it a fear of losing your job if you boldly proclaim the glories of Christ? Is it a fear of not making a paycheck to provide for your family? Is it our personalities? Like, I'm just not made to do that. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Is it fear that we'll lose our life? Is it a fear that we'll lose affection of people? That we'll tick people off if we pursue Christ? Is it a fear that we just won't be seen as the people we think we are? What is it? Because it's probably different from everyone things that hold me back from pursuing Christ with everything might be different than the things that are holding you back. But know this, that regardless of what it is, it's worth it to lay those things down and say Christ is enough. And in essence, that's what we find Jesus doing. Don't fret. I've got this. Don't worry. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. Will you have enough faith to follow me? To pursue what I'm calling you to do? And not that you need reminding of this, but I'm just going to tell you that if you haven't memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and possibly 10 by now, then you're just not listening. But salvation is the work of Christ. It's not us working to Him. And the promise of that we have in salvation is not only that He saved us, but He set us apart to do His work for His glory, for our good, for our joy. And in case you did miss it in Ephesians 2.10, He has created us to do His work and He has already prepared the works. So He knows what's coming. He knows what He's called you to. He knows where you're supposed to go. And He knows what the outcome will be. So again, I want to reiterate verse 1. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so he gives them the promise of heaven, but he doesn't stop with the promise of heaven. He even tells them the way to heaven. Verses 4 and 5, he says this, And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Doubting Thomas. It wasn't just one instance where Thomas doubted, there were multiple. 
And Thomas catches a bad rap when he probably was simply saying what all of them were thinking, right? But Jesus offers this promise of heaven, but then he, he doesn't leave them hanging. He actually tells them how to get there. The way is him. They don't need a map. They need a person. They need him. And they should know this because he's told them this over and over and over and over again. But you know, they don't catch the big picture very often. And we see Thomas is doubting here because he just doesn't quite understand, right? So what does Jesus do? He offers a little bit of clarification. Just in case you've missed what I've been telling you for three years, I'm going to tell you one more time in verse 6. So Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the thing is, we probably all read that verse basically that way. right? We read it fast. We want to put the emphasis on way, truth, and life. And that's important, but... It's not the only thing that's important here. See, unless you know Greek, you wouldn't know this. I actually don't remember much of my Greek, so I learned this through the commentary. I was reminded of this. But our emphasis is typically on way, truth, and life. You know, Jordan even made a joke with me last Sunday night, like, I bet I can't guess what your sermon outline is going to be next Sunday. He was wrong. You can tell him that. But I want you to not simply notice way, truth, and life. What I actually want you to see, and if again, I told you this last week, if you're a writer or you're underliner, I want you to underline not way, truth, and life. I want you to underline the definite article the before each one of those. All right? And then I want you to read it this way. I am the way. Because this is how the emphasis in the original would have been. So, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So, the emphasis is not on way or truth or life. It's actually the, right? So, what Jesus is doing is he's actually proving that he just isn't a way. He's not simply one way, not some way to the Father. No, he is the only way. And yet in this skeptical world that we live that that wants to push all kind of inclusive ideals, there is simply still only one way to Jesus. Go tell that to the masses and you'll be screamed at and yelled at. But be reminded of verse 1. Let your hearts not be troubled. God's got this. Christianity is not an all-inclusive religion. It's extremely exclusive. And people bucket that and they hate that, but that's just simply sin stirring in their hearts. Jesus isn't just simply another way. Folks that hold to another religion are not our brothers and sisters. We should love them. We should love them enough to proclaim the gospel. But Islam is not simply another way to God. 
Buddhism is not simply another way to God. Hinduism is not simply another way to God. Good works, good morals are not simply another way to God. No, Jesus is the only way, period. Therefore, we need to remember this, that it's Jesus, the Son of the living God, who must go to the cross. It's Jesus that must carry our sin. It's Jesus that must taste the wrath of God. It's Jesus who must be buried. It was Jesus who must be resurrected. Why? In order for us to inherit the eternal reward. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. Again, and and I've been guilty of this too, that we have a tendency of looking at all three of those statements, the way, the truth, and the life, but the actual emphasis here, the, the thing that the original language was pushing more than any of it was the way. Actually, truth and life are meant to describe the way. They're meant to support the way. It's not three different things necessarily. There there are two things that support the fact that He is the only way. And, And He tells us that He is truth and life, but those things are there to prepare us to understand that He is exclusively the way to God. If you will, just kind of hold your finger there and flip back to John 1. In John 1, we see that Jesus is the truth, right? Right off the bat, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word, again, is Jesus. That's why it's capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, God, period. And verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was Life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, existed in our presence, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so you see truth and life, and in Chapter 5, verse 26, we see it again. He says this, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So He's truth and life, but it's the truth and life that points to the exclusivity of Christ, that He is the only way. So then we can say this, that because Jesus is the truth and the life, He then is the way To reach the Father. So what does that mean for us? That no matter what someone says or what someone does or how someone acts, if you don't believe that Jesus is God and that he has come to save, then salvation has not found you. And the Bible tells us that we should confess The only way to salvation is Jesus, through Jesus, which is why Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess our sins, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And a few verses later, he says, so whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's all resting on the person and work of Jesus. He is the only way. 
And if that's the case, if Jesus is the only way to the Father, then when we say that we're a Christian, that's what we believe. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't believe that Jesus is the only way, I'm here to tell you you're not a Christian. There are no other ways to the Father. You can't merit your way to Jesus. You can't attain a certain status to where God accepts you as one of His. You can't offer sacrifices enough to get to Jesus. You can't give enough to get to Jesus. You can't serve enough to get to Jesus. You can't attend church enough to get to Jesus. You can't provide and love anyone enough to get to Jesus. You must trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross as a payment for your sin and confess that to Him. That's your way to Jesus. That's your way to the Father. That's the way to heaven. And the byproduct of that is by trusting that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's going to do, is we also believe that his word is his word. That it is inerrant, infallible, inspired, and sufficient. We don't just simply believe what we want to in the Bible. We don't just hold tight to what we think we should hold tight to in the Bible. Or, or we don't only believe like certain parts and then just discard parts. No, because to question the Word of God, to, to only receive part of the Word of God is not to really trust in God. And so when we try to warp the Word or, or question the Word or twist the Word to fit our personal belief system, we're in fatal error. So true Christians hold fast to the Word of God without question. Why? Because it reflects the nature and the character of God. And he has just said, do not be troubled. I am God. And I am the only way to the Father. I am the only way to eternal. Rejoicing with the Father. And so the Bible is not just suggestions. We don't just take the parts what we want and, and just discard the parts we don't. And we don't just twist it to believe so, so it fits what we think we should believe. No, we believe every word because it's the word of God. It's not based on our opinions or our feelings. What does God's word say? In this case, God's word is saying that Jesus is the only way. It goes on in verses 7 and following. It says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Jesus said to him, If I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
or else believe on account of the works themselves. So we land on verse 7 and following where we see that if we know Jesus, then we know the Father. Why? Again, because they are one. Jesus is very God, a very God. And so if this is true, which it is, then the only rational belief is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that he has come to redeem his people through his death on the cross. And he has the authority to do, authority to do and say just that. Which is why in the Great Commission, we hear him say, all authority has been given to me. The authority of life and death. The authority to save, to not. The authority to heal or to not. All authority is His. Why? Because He and the Father are one. So what does all that mean? If Jesus is God in the flesh... What he's simply saying to the disciples and and to us is that we can say we believe God, but if we believe that Jesus is only a way and not the way, then we've kind of missed the point. Because if we're saying that, then we also don't believe the words of Jesus, which means we don't believe that he's actually God. But he's clearly shown us through the gospel of John up to this point that he is not simply another person, but he is God in the flesh come to do God's work, which is save God's people from their sin. So if you think you're just going to snake through life and that it will eventually work out in the end for you, without fully surrendering to Christ, it's not happening. Jesus is the way, the only way. And thankfully, He is a gracious and a merciful Father who loves us and He cares for uh, for us enough to actually go to Calvary. You know, if we don't see the the weight of our sin. We don't respect the cross. We don't see the grace that was put on display at the cross. But when we understand ourselves in light of who God is, then we see Jesus act on the cross and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so he promises heaven, and then he shows the way to heaven, and then we find the journey to heaven. And as we move into that last section, the journey of heaven, I want to begin by clarifying the title to that. Because it would seem right off the bat that it almost unties the knot that I just tried to tie. That Jesus is the only way, that he is the exclusive way to the Father. So I want to give you a clarifying statement, right? That in referring to the journey to heaven, I am not saying that we can work our way to heaven. I'm not saying that we can attain 
heaven, that we can achieve heaven. No. What I want us to see is this. That your life, my life, upon trusting Jesus for salvation, looks radically different. It's not just the status quo. We have surrendered everything to Him. And again, if we understand the the weight of our sin and we then understand what Christ has done for us on the cross in removing that sin and washing us clean of that sin, then you can't walk away unchanged. Because you rejoice in the hope of salvation. And your life is no longer about you. My life is no longer about me. It's about exhausting myself for the glory of God because of what He has done. To glorify Him in all things. Now, again, when I say exhaust myself for the glory of God, I'm not telling you to break the Sabbath. I'm telling you still, you rest. But in the time that you have, you work for the good of other people by glorifying God in everything you do. And know the eternal reward for that is great. And there's such a vast difference in working, trying to attain something versus working because we've already been given something. And that's the goodness of the gospel. That we're not working ourselves to death so that God will look at us and hopefully say that it was enough. No, we literally work ourselves to death because he has given us more than we ever deserved. And that's life in Christ. And He fills us with the Holy Spirit when we trust in Him. And He sends us again on a path as His workmanship to do His work which He has already prepared for us. And I feel like I need to say this, that if you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and you call yourself a Christian, the Holy Spirit is living within you. But yet if your life is contradictory to the Word of God, if your teaching is contradictory to the Word of God, then maybe you actually haven't truly trusted in Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit living within you is not going to contradict the Father. The Holy Spirit will not contradict the Word of God. Which, sidebar, this is extra. When you hear someone making claims that they're a modern day prophet or they're making these claims that God said and and they're trying to course correct the Scripture... That's not from God. God was sovereign and God is sovereign and God is all-knowing and God has given us all we need in the pages of this word. And anything that would go against and contradict this is not from Him. 
Because philosophically, that just doesn't make sense. Right? I mean, if God is God, then he's God. That means he knows all things. And so if he knew all things, then he wouldn't have messed up. Right? So when somebody in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, is telling us something that contradicts the word of God, it's not from God. Which kind of brings us back to the point. What Jesus is doing and comforting and providing compassion for his followers here is reminding them, I am who you thought I was when I told you. I am Messiah. I am God in the flesh. I know what's coming. I know how it's going to play out. I know how it's going to affect your life. So trust me. And really, that's the message for us, too. Jesus created you. All things were made by him and through him. Jesus has called you. If you're a Christian, then Jesus has saved you. Jesus has set you apart to do his work. Remember Ephesians 2.10. And so he knows what's coming. He knew what he had called Jim Elliot to when he called him to South America. He knew Jim Elliot would lose his life after only being there a short time. He knew at this point that Peter would eventually be martyred, that all the other disciples would be martyred, that John would be boiled alive in oil, that John would be exiled to Patmos. He knew that you would be born. He knew that you would be here at this moment, at this time. He knows the work that he's called you to do. He knows the work that he's called me to do, and he knows how that will play out. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. So what do we do? We work. Not to receive salvation, but because we've already received salvation. That is for those who have confessed Jesus as the Christ. And our confidence then comes in knowing that Jesus is the way. And so I want to leave you with a quote done it again, sorry, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great Christian pastor and theologian living in Nazi Germany, very interesting individual, interesting stories, and I'll save all that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed for preaching the gospel, among other things. Namely, that they were trying to get rid of Hitler but um, for preaching the gospel, for standing firm on the word of God. In one of his most famous works, The Cost of the Discipleship, he wrote this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Your life is not your own. 
You have been created for a purpose. So trust God with your life. And know that our hope is that He is who He says He is. And if we have confessed Jesus as the Christ, heaven is our home. And we are simply just pilgrims passing through this land. But we are to make the most of our time here. Because of the goodness that's been shown to us in Christ, given his life to save us from our sin. When God should have, could have, destroyed us, he gave us hope. What will we do? If you confess that Jesus is the Lord, then you have a place prepared for you in the Father's house. If not, I urge you to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, what great joy it is to know And for those of us who have trusted in the saving work of Jesus, our home is already prepared. So let us, without any weight or hindrance, run the race that is set before us. to declare your good, your glory in all the earth. And for those here who have never truly trusted in the saving work of Jesus, I pray that any excuse, any pride, any thoughts would just fade away and that a bold declaration of faith would be made today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.